Hey everybody, this is Alex. This is Natasha. And we are back with our equity listener survey. This is the second time we are doing this. We are incredibly hyped. So we want to do another temperature check because we have gotten a ton of new listeners. Thank you. And our loyal listeners. We always want to make sure we are doing our best work for you. So if you want to take the survey, it's just a couple of clicks. It's really, really quick. There is a link pinned to the top of the Equity Pod Twitter account. There is a post over on TechCrunch.com. If you're looking, just my author page if you want. And essentially just fill it out and we'll make the show better. It's pretty one-to-one. And to sweeten the deal for those who like surprises, if you complete the survey, you will be entered to win an equity gift basket. The basket is a mystery to you and to us right now, (laughs) but the things you might possibly win would be TechCrunch socks, Disrupt tickets, tickets to our first live stream recording of the show. We're also offering a timeshare with our Webby Award, a Danny Crichton transition carved into a single block of aluminum. And uh, (laughs) if we nag people enough, maybe, maybe, I can't promise this, an equity t-shirt. We are still on our crusade for merch after all these years. But please fill out the survey. It makes us super smart and super happy. And so we appreciate it and we appreciate you. And with that, let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday episode where we niche down to a single topic. And today we are talking about one that I'm actually ridiculously excited about. We are going to talk about hormonal health from a startup perspective. Now, I am joined today by Natasha Mascarenas, one of our regular co-hosts and someone who's done quite a lot of reporting on this topic. Natasha, one, how are you? And two, what is hormonal health? One, I'm doing fantastic. It's always fun to record with you, even though we're now over a year into talking every single day. And two, hormonal health is literally the health of the hormones. But today we're going to talk about it specifically in how it impacts women's health, because hormones sit at the center of so many conditions that I would say disproportionately impact women One being infertility, others being stuff like weight gain, depression, polycystic ovary syndrome. The condition impacts like one in 10 women and is like many hormonal conditions core to a lot of other issues like an increased risk of diabetes. The reason that we're talking about it today is because hormonal health continues to be like the center node of a lot of things that are already conversations in health today. And essentially, the argument that we're going to make is this is an enormous market, one with a lot of TAM if you're into venture capital acronyms. And to help us understand what's going on, we have a player from the space, as they say in the startup game. We have Elizabeth Ruzzo from Aiden. Elizabeth, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So just for fun, can you tell everyone briefly what Aiden does? And then I'm going to let Natasha drive us into our first major topic here. But I want to let you have 30 seconds first. So Aiden has created the first test that's designed to prevent birth control side effects. But really, Aiden is a precision medicine company that's looking not just at hormone fluctuations, but also at genetics. I love it. Now, Natasha, this entire topic became a bit more real to me when I read your piece, Hormonal Health is a Massive Opportunity, colon, Where Are the Unicorns? And after reading through that, I have to agree with your thesis. Just given the scale of how many people hormonal things impact, the amount of money, just for example, that women control in the healthcare space, 
you would think that there would be some enormous companies, but it seems that the startups that we're talking about today are a bit more nascent. Totally. I mean, the story quite literally was a result of me seeing one startup in YC that was covering PCOS, realizing that's a really cool proposition, and then wondering where the rest of them were because I couldn't find competitors. And so, yeah, I ended up working backwards from that. And that's obviously where I met you, Elizabeth. And you too, I guess, said that you there weren't a plethora of examples that I'm missing out on in hormonal health specifically, right? Definitely not. It is absolutely a nascent space. I think that is the right word for it. I think the numbers that were thrown around when I was doing my research, just to kind of set the landscape a little bit, by 2025, women's health could be around a 50 billion industry. By 2026, digital health is estimated to hit 221 billion. And so hormonal health doesn't fit squarely in one category or another. Hormonal health isn't simply women's health or simply digital health. But those two numbers, I think we can hook onto at the top in case anyone listening is confused on if there's dollars to be spent in this world. I mean, forget dollars to be spent, more like dollars to be made. I mean, that's so much kind of just in market spend today. You would think that it would build dozens of unicorns on the back of that kind of revenue growth. Natasha, the one thing that I picked up on prepping for today's conversation was something that you wrote about how the first wave of digital health companies, thinking of you know firms like Rode that combined telehealth and kind of traditional you know medications, were always about things that were kind of reactive. Whereas this kind of newer wave of companies that include Aiden, helping consumers navigate their health before getting diagnosed with an issue or running into a problem. Can you tell me a little bit more about the distinction between kind of like health companies wave one and two? And Elizabeth, I totally want you to correct me and chime in at the end when I try and explain this. But I think the way I view it is a lot of people in digital health right now are basically trying to say that the future of medicine, the future of care is personalized and proactive. It's not just, I don't feel good. I know I have PCOS and I actually need a registered dietitian today. Because that, I think, assumes a lot of consumers. It assumes you are in a situation where you understand your health conditions and have a diagnosis, which with a condition like PCOS is super hard to get. So I think we're Hopefully, and the moonshot hair is heading toward a spot where healthcare becomes something that is responsive before you even know how to ask for it. Elizabeth, help me out here. I know you kind of brought up the proactive bit when we were talking. Exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of what's out there is reactive. I think a lot of people who have founded companies have done so because they had a really painful experience with trying to get pregnant, with getting a PCOS diagnosis, with finding the help they needed. For me, with getting gaslit about side effects from birth control. Um, And so I think myself and a few others are coming at it also from this lens of like, you know, I'm a PhD by training. I'm really interested in helping understand how we can get to the root cause of disease and therefore how we can be proactive about helping people have ownership over their health. And I think a big challenge that we're up against broadly in this area is education. So when you think about even things like menopause, a lot of women don't learn about perimenopause or menopause until they are experiencing it, right? So I think that's just one of many examples where people don't know what they even should be looking for until they're experiencing that pain themselves. So niching this down to just what Aiden does, which is you know helping you select a birth control that will presumably have fewer, if maybe even no side effects based on your kind of physiology, you know, is that resonating with consumers who are like, look, I want to either get ahead of this or I want to correct the issues that I've been going through? Because it, it, I mean, I'm a man, but like my experience with people who take birth control has been that they don't know much about how it works. Absolutely. I mean, I think 
that the crazy statistic that I like to say is that the majority of women, so 52% of women have to try four or more methods of birth control. That doesn't even count multiple kinds of the same pill before finding one that they're satisfied on. So yes, some women get really lucky and get right on the first or second try, but a lot of them don't. And so, you know, I think those are the people who just get it without me having to explain why we're doing this. And I think that's like where I see a lot of the opportunity and it being easier to explain to the general consumer about the opportunity in hormonal health, which is that consumers want to know what they are doing. And they feel like in so many other aspects of their life, they have options. They know what they're signing up for. They know what's going to be delivered in that package from Amazon in two days. And I think like, yeah, it makes so much more sense to be making strides on that front on sorry, on the digital health front than on other fronts. And so as consumers feel more empowered, I feel like catching up in digital health just it feels very overdue. In Aiden's world, of course, there was like the very normal dance of like word of mouth is the best way to figure out your birth control. And that's when you know something is broken when like something as important as birth control is based on word of mouth. Exactly. Whisper networks, reddits, things like that to try to figure out what on earth you should be doing. But when the reality is your biology is different from your friend's biology, so you shouldn't expect what worked for them necessarily to work for you. I'm going to make a terrible analogy here, but a bit like how we think about like whenever people are using spreadsheets, there should be kind of a SaaS solution. Maybe in healthcare, whenever there's a whisper network as the main method of information, there's something missing. So build something there. I mean, I learned a lot prepping for today's show. It kind of underscored for me just like my surprise that more VCs aren't trying to find entrepreneurs right now who are tackling this space. There's a great piece that we're going to link to in the show notes today entitled Why We're Betting Big on Women's Health, which is from, I think it was three or four venture capitalists, including Chrissy Farr, formerly a reporter over at CNBC on the health space and just a, a brilliant person in my view talked about just how much money there is here and how women also control 80% of healthcare spend. It's tens of billions of dollars in yearly revenue that seems to be ignored. And, and mostly what we've seen so far is, is, is dick pills from Roe. And I just think that that's not the whole game. I feel like we need more women VCs to like real, just to change, to shake this up. Like what, what, a, what a missed opportunity for decades now. But sure, we have vertical SaaS for, you know, lawnmowers. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're right. And I think like one thing that has obviously stopped this was stigma around women's health. But the more fun question now going forward is like, are we at an inflection point post COVID in the world of virtual care or are we still going to get stuck in infancy? And I'm actually curious what both of you think about that, because I think like our hearts might want something. But I'm wondering, like, really, reality, where's reality at today? I think that's a great question. I think that hopefully we are at an inflection point where things are going to change. I'm hoping we can also capitalize on how COVID made people appreciate science again and appreciate healthcare again and want to lean into that. And I wonder how much of a game changer it will be for direct to consumer companies to get healthcare reimbursement for some of this, including the way that telemedicine reimbursement opened up a bit for COVID and how those laws might stay that way on a state by state basis. And I think that that could really help drive drive innovation. Just adding to that, the American medical system, if you're not in the States listening to this, because I know we have, we have friends around the world, it is pretty silly, comically complex and controlled by precisely no one. So it's a mess. 
And one thing that we often struggle with are regulations around what is paid for by insurance companies, what is reimbursable by government insurance companies. And given how antiquated many of these systems are, telehealth either wasn't allowed or wasn't reimbursable and therefore wasn't economically viable. Which is wild. Things have changed thanks to COVID. COVID essentially shoved about 10 years of digital transformation into the American health tech world, if you will. And so now things are more possible that are financially feasible, if you will. And so Elizabeth's point is maybe if we can keep some of this, we might be able to see more innovation in the space and better outcomes for, I mean, everyone from people who struggle to get to a doctor's office, either via disability or via age, all the way through the gamut of just making things maybe a bit more easy to to access if you're if you're a woman, for example, who needs a particular appointment. So I'm optimistic about that. In fact, uh, in response to your question, Natasha, I wrote in the notes doc, does telehealth change things? And my answer is hopefully yes, because my gosh, I mean, I just a tiny little anecdote. I, I had a doctor's appointment about my anti-anxiety meds, gosh, two months ago. And I, I just called them and I was like, I don't want to come in because <laughs> I, I hadn't been vaccinated yet at the time. And they were kind of like they hemmed and hawed and they're like, OK, fine, maybe we'll get you in this afternoon. And then I talked to my doctor for like seven minutes and I said I was fine. Dose is great. Thanks. Yep. Everything's cool. And then that was cool. And I saved two Ubers and, vac- you know, and COVID exposure. So. Gosh, totally. I, I hope this stuff trickles down to more spaces. I hope that it increases access and lowers prices for women's health more generally. 100%. I think that's actually a perfect segue into some signs we're seeing that even though this sector is nascent, it is growing and people are paying attention to it. I thought maybe we could start with one of the bigger news items that really underscored an exit opportunity in this world, which is that Roe acquired Modern Fertility in a deal that was north of $225 million. Modern Fertility was founded similar to Aiden and bet on proactive care, kind of spotting fertility issues for people who are attempting to conceive and was founded the same year as Roe. And so I guess I want to pause there and kind of get Elizabeth's take now on that acquisition. If when you saw it, were you surprised? Does it make sense? Kind of getting your two cents on that. I was surprised. I was sort of hoping modern fertility was going to become our first big unicorn in the space. I think it's interesting to see that Roe, who had such huge success in such a niche, clearly needed help figuring out how to expand. Acquisition of Modern Fertility definitely was a good move for Roe and for their ability to quickly more than double the audience that they were serving. So for people who don't know, Roe started as a company that was going to work on helping people who are going through erectile dysfunction. It has since grown immensely, last valued at $5 billion. And I think two years ago, launched Rory, which is their line that focuses on women. And so Modern Fertility is joining the team and will be under Rory. So you see the combining of forces there. So why are we talking down a $225 million exit, give or take? It's, it's because that's in the venture world, kind of small potatoes. Keep in mind that venture capitalists will make a number of bets. Some of them will do well, some of them will go to zero. And really, it's a business at the extremes that your biggest outlier successes drive the returns for your fund. They make the entire model economically viable. And so to see two companies founded at the same time, to have the one focused on women subsumed into the one focused on men originally for uh, what's that, like, you know, four and a half percent of the valuation of the larger company. It's a bit of a, a bummer, even though, yes, you know, for you and I, a quarter billion dollars is more money than God. In, in this case, the scale is different. And so it's actually, I'm not going to say a letdown, but it's not, as Elizabeth kind of said, what we expected or hoped for for a company in this space. And critically, if it had sold for $88 trillion, that may have been a signal to investors to put more money into the space. And then we could add a, you know, add a zero to Aiden's next round. 
which I'm sure Elizabeth will have coming out. <laughs> that uh, would that very, would be very lovely. Soon. <laughs> and no, she's promised yeah. to come on the show and tell us all about it when it, when it finishes. <laughs> deal, deal. <laughs> As a seed founder, did you feel a seed stage founder? Did you feel like the acquisition was kind of immediately something that was filling up your inbox or filling up your DMs? Or yeah, what was kind of the reaction there? I felt like a little surprised by how many people were disappointed by it. You know, I felt like some people would have been like, oh, this is great. This is a great sign. This is a great exit. But I think that disappointment comes from the promise that I think everybody thinks that this field holds and how big of an addressable market it is to figure out how to help women be proactive about their health, to understand their body, to be engaged with their own data. I see both sides here. I see why Modern Fertility is excited about the acquisition. I actually ended up talking to Afton, who's one of their co-founders, and she had told me for my story that the biggest reason they combine forces, actual quote, quite honestly, we don't have time to lose in women's health. And that's what we said yes to, which was Rose Footprint. And so I think there's definitely a balance. And I, I find at least personally, there is a pressure, which I think is a symptom of a lack of underinvestment in women. Um, there's pressure that's put on these companies to be the next X, Y, and Z. And so, yeah, I think there's like both sides are worth definitely expressing. And I tried to do that in the story and we're doing it here. I feel like it's complicated. And I think it's the fact that there's any controversy to begin with shows that there's so much opportunity, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Which Absolutely. brings me to, to Aiden's seed round, which I don't think we've actually talked about on the show yet. So uh, 2.5 million raised in April. So about a month and a half ago, give or take, co-led by Lux Capital and M13. Now, Elizabeth, M13 is not M12. M12 is the Microsoft VC, and it's not M25, which is the Midwest-focused VC. M13 just is the which one? Things. Is, is the just right one, right in the middle. There you go. It's the Goldilocks of, of MVC firms. Exactly. Um, no, jokes aside, I, I'm very curious about a couple of things. One, why two and a half million? Why was it the right amount for your company? And two, how was the fundraising process? Did it kind of meet expectations? Was it easier? Was it harder? What was the kind of on the ground dynamic when you were putting that together? In terms of the amount raised, you know, that was the amount that we felt like could get us to pick up momentum, to literally get the MVP out there, get it into the hands of women and build out the next stages of it. So the science was there, but building out like obviously the logistics, the distribution, the figuring out that telemedicine component was really important to me because part of what I think is happening with our standard of care is that contraceptive counseling appointments are 13 minutes on average. So in that 13 minutes, your doctor is supposed to pick between, you know, nearly 200 birth control options with no real data in their hands. And so we thought that it was not irresponsible, but the right thing to do to get people in front of a healthcare provider for this decision. So that was kind of the the big goals that we're going to hit with that amount of money. Okay. So spitting that back to you, it sounds like this was the amount of money that you needed to reach essentially the next set of milestones and a possible inflection point, at which point it's going to be easier to raise more capital. But circling back to putting together this round, you guys are a pretty early stage company. This is a, a seed deal. So how hard was it to get investor interest when you're not really like, look, our revenue is up a thousand percent in the last 48 hours? I think that people understood the mission. Maybe I should correct that and say I wrote down at the top of my investor meeting notes one question that I would answer afterwards every time, which was, did they get the problem? And Mm. if the answer was yes, they were basically wanted to invest. 
If the answer was no, it was just not even worth pursuing. And a lot of that was because they needed a wife or daughter or partner, you know, in their life to have gone through it for them to understand it. Can I ask, like when you say problem, because I think Aiden is interesting for multiple reasons, one of them being that birth control is a wedge in, but it's not your end goal. It's not your only end goal. So which problem and maybe explain what I'm alluding to. um, Did you feel like investors really were like, okay, that's what I'm putting a chunk of cash into? You know, I really think of Aiden as starting with birth control, but it is a precision medicine company. And so I think what Aiden has that a lot of other companies solving very specific problems don't have is a clear plan for horizontal expansion to serve a bunch of different underserved, under-researched needs. And so what I mean by that is we're hoping that we can do things like early diagnostics for PCOS and other things, as well as menopause support. And I think that just that full picture of being able to do true R&D and serve increasing populations with our approach, as well as our mission of making scientific discovery more inclusive was very appealing. I love that mission. I, I, I feel like most startups are like, our mission is to connect people in the office so they save less time when they're going to the snack machine. We're like, we're going <laughs> to fix science for people. That's what we're going to do. Sit give, down. give us more Sit money to down. attack this problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, th- this, is, this is why, by the way, it, it's always so much fun to talk to early stage founders because they haven't, and I, Elizabeth, don't take this the wrong way, but they haven't yet been flattened by media training into saying only boring things. And they're still willing to be like, uh, the world sucks. We're going to fix it now. And that is why I, I love talking to like, YC Sam. companies and, and, and other firms that are kicking off because they're still so full of hope. It's lovely. Uh, speaking of it. things that are changing up, though, Natasha, Vera Health put together a round. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. So while a company like Aiden Modern Fertility is going for the proactive approach, we're also seeing some startups in hormonal health try and meet consumers with where they're at like today or maybe yesterday, which is we have this problem and now we need help figuring out how to take care of it. So um, one company is Vera Health, which actually inspired this whole deep dive to begin with. They are a YC graduate that wants to help women in India navigate polycystic ovary syndrome. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, the condition impacts like one in 10 women and is like many hormonal conditions core to a lot of other issues like an increased risk of diabetes. So Vera Health recently raised $3 million in a seed round and their whole value prop, if I'm understanding it correctly, is women right now have to piecemeal together a game plan for their health and we want to give them one place to go. And it's kind of as simple as that. Like it's the system is so broken that just helping the systems talk to each other is enough of a business proposition, which is no slam on them. I think it just is really smart and um, is is part of their pitch for sure. Elizabeth, I know you, you know, are friendly with the Vera Health founders. What's your take on them and how would you kind of describe their wedge into the market? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. I think their approach of helping navigate the healthcare system making that easier is great. I think that it's also really speaking to the fact that for a lot of these conditions that um, primarily affect women, there aren't cures and there are a lot of struggles with not being believed, making it really hard to get that diagnosis. And so instead of having an expert who can treat everything, you might need to go, like they're saying, to a dermatologist and a nutritionist and make that solution yourself. You know, just thinking about this, the scale of the problem, a lot of people out there 
probably haven't heard of PCOS, one, Google it, learn, because it's impacting women in your life. It's something that you should be more read up on. But I just did a little bit of math. Sorry for the typing sounds in the background. But uh, roughly 1.39 billion people in India, half of which are women, 10% of that, 69.6 million people that could be, have PCOS in India. That's one hell of a TAM, you know? I mean, like that, that's the topic yeah. of opportunity we're talking about here. Applying telehealth, medicine, and, and, and like, I, I don't know, humanity to these problems is going to be a huge business if you can get it right. And that's why Vera Health made it into YC. That's why they raised a $3 million round. And that's why I fully expect to see a lot more of this kind of moving forward. At least we've gotten this far. You know, here's yeah. some more. I think, you know, similar to that, another proof point actually news broke today was that someone who was the a former executive at Roe, so the person who was in charge of actually launching Rory to begin with, Rachel Blank, is starting a PCOS startup and she has raised a couple million to do that. And the company, I'll have it up on, on TechCrunch and linked in the show notes, it's called Alara. And similar to Vera Health, it's focusing a lot on bundling up a suite of services, thinking about how to serve women. Actually, I'll quote her directly because I think she says it best. How do we treat women's healthcare in a way that their entire healthcare outcomes become better, but they include the nuance of them being women? It's really cool to see, again, another company literally spin out of Roe, or at least the founder spin out of Roe, to focus on PCOS. Like if that's validation, I think it speaks VC terms because it's former Roe. Well, uh, I'm getting the signal that we are short on time. So Elizabeth, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. We're going to do a little bit more of this, everyone. It's fun to have guests back now that we have the technology to do it. Natasha, thank you for all the research on this and, and taking the lead today. And everyone else, don't forget we are back Friday morning with our news roundup. It's been a busy week, so you're not going to want to miss that. All right. Bye. <laughs>